Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We are in Parshat Bo, and we're getting, and Moshe is being told by God, speak to the whole community of Israel and say that this is what you're going to do. On the 10th day of the month, you're going to take a lamb, one to each family, and then you're going to hang on to it, right? And then you're going to slaughter it on the 14th day, and then you're going to put blood on the doorposts, right? And you're going to roast it and eat it with bitter herbs. This is how you shall eat it. That's where we're going to, um, we're going to back up just a little bit and look there. Um, actually, yeah, let, let's back up. Go to, go to 1211. So this is happening, this instruction, eat this lamb, put the blood, blah, 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 this is how you're going to eat it. This is all happening when? When we're still in slavery. Still in slavery. Still in Egypt. Right? Sounds like you're ready to go to war. Right? Yeah. All right, so um, Robert, read it since you're there. This is how you shall eat it. Your loins girded. Are you ready to go to war? Your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand, you shall eat it hurriedly. It is a Passover offering to Adonai. For that night I will go through the land of Egypt and strike down every firstborn in the land of Egypt, both human and beast, and I will mete out punishments to all the gods of Egypt. I, I, Adonai. And the blood on the houses where you are staying should be a sign for you. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. So that no plague will destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Go on. This day shall be to you one of remembrance. You shall celebrate it as a festival to Adonai throughout the ages. You shall celebrate it as an institution for all time. Seven days shall you eat unleavened bread. On the very first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. Whoever eats leavened bread from the first day to the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. You shall celebrate a sacred occasion on the first day and a sacred occasion on the seventh day. No work at all shall be done on them. Only what every person is to eat, that alone may be prepared for you. You shall observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread, for on this very day I brought your ranks out of the land of Egypt. You shall observe this day throughout the ages as an institution for all time. In the first month, from the 14th day of the month, at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. No leaven shall be found in your houses for seven days. For whoever eats what is leavened, that person, whether a stranger or a citizen of the country, shall be cut off from the community of Israel. You shall eat nothing leavened, and all your settlements you shall eat unleavened bread. Okay. So we get language here we're a little familiar with. We're used to seeing it somewhere else. But we're going to look at this commandment. So this is the commandment to take the lamb, to hold on to it till the 14th day, and to slaughter it on the 14th day. You're going to eat it that night. But you're not going to eat it like you normally do. You're going to eat it very differently. How are you going to eat it? With your learns... <laughs> your learns goited. With your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you will eat it Bechipazon, hurriedly. So it's fast. So it's partly, it sounds like if you gird your loins, you are ready to, as Robert said, go to war. But if your sandals are on your feet, you don't leave the house in the wild, wild west without your gun. So it isn't necessarily war. It's that you're getting ready to leave, to go, and you don't know what's out there. Right? So... Whenever you're going to go, right, in some kind of, like, rush, you're, you're going to strap on protection. So you're, you're strapping on your protection, your sandals are on, your staff is in your hand, the, your walking staff, your traveling staff, your backpack is on your back. And you're going to eat it hurriedly, right? So this kind of rush. Like, how do we feel when we eat really fast? Yeah. <laughs> right? Particularly meat. If we're going to consume, if you kill a lamb, you, you consume the whole thing. 
That's a lot of meat, right? Even if you're in a clan and you're living in a clan, it's, it's a lot of meat you're going to eat. It's very rich. So lamb is very rich. And you're going to rush and eat this like this. If you're going to eat it like that, what is the implication? Something's going to happen when? Soon. Soon. <laughs> Fairly quickly. I got to choke down this Subway sandwich because I have a meeting that's going to start at, right in five minutes. You choke something down like that and are ready to go when something is about to happen soon. What are the Israelites told to do on this night? Stay in the house until morning. So there is a serious tension in the text between eating like we got to run, like it's fast food, right? And they're told to stay in their house with their sandals on. With the, remember, they didn't wear sandals in the house, right? You know, so we're talking about you have your hiking boots on and your walking stuff and your backpack and your, and your purse and your keys, you know, and your sunglasses. My daughter goes through the checklist every time we're at the door. Mom, do you have your sunglasses? Mom, do you have your phone? Mom, do you have your keys? Um, because usually I don't, right? So, I know, right? So so nice. Judy, do you have mommy's keys? Ma, do you have mommy's sunglasses? Um, so, you, when you're like that, everything is triggered in you that it's time to go. And you're staying like that all night long with your car keys in your hand. It's a very odd tableau that we don't really think about very often. You know the pageant of the masters? I've never been, but of course, you know, everybody has their own, like, you know, um, amazing way of describing, like, the pageant of the masters and their face changes. It's like an ecstatic recall that happens for people. Um, The drama of people being a painting, standing still, and creating this incredible image just by standing still. That's, that's my impression. Every household, every Israelite household has this tableau all across that part of Egypt. It reminds me of the Palisades, and let me tell you why. Who remembers Please. 1993 or 1997 when there were the fires, and they told everybody the night before, pack everything that you would need to leave in a hurry, and we had to pack up the guinea pig and your photo album, but you stayed over, in your shoes and your glasses, but you had to stay overnight because at any moment you could be called to evacuate like, like that. that. So what state does that create? Vigilance. Vigilance. Tension. Tension. Fear. Panic. Fear. Fear. Readiness. Readiness. You have to have faith. Being alert. Faith, being alert. All of those are accurate. Now, hold all of that in one scene. For the whole night. No one's sleeping. No one's sleeping. What's the other reason they're not sleeping? Because what's happening? The destroyer has been unleashed. At midnight, and in every house in Egypt, there is wailing. So you not only can't go, and you're ready to go, and you're eating like you're ready to go, but there's screaming in the night everywhere around you. Now, just to add to this, in case this wasn't enough, what are the plagues before this? What was the pla- what was the last plague before this night? That's this night. Darkness. A darkness that was so palpable they couldn't move. You could feel the dark. It was so dark. Like, it's not a dark that means no light. It's a dark, and we all know what that means, don't we? The dark that isn't about, there's just no light. It's the dark that has its own reality. Dark that's so dark that it's its own thing. It's not just that something's missing. It's its own animated force. Their, their emotions were so they're coming too. off of that. Coming off of so they're coming off of 
the plague. Now, that's for the Egyptians, right? The Israelites had light in their homes, say the, right, the, we're, we're told. But, right, the plague of darkness in Egypt. What was the plague before darkness? Ah, you know what's going there. Locusts. You got a swarm, and this happens in the Near East. When locusts swarm, it is, it is dark, right? They block out the sun. And what do they do? This, is it a friendly visitation of a cloud of happy butterflies? No. They devour everything in their path. And it's a huge racket. And it's a huge racket. It's noisy as they consume everything. <laughs> they are so sleep deprived. But so think about that. You've got darkness caused by insects that swarm, make a lot of noise, and consume everything. What are we afraid of in the dark when we're little? Everything. <laughs> everything. But what we're afraid of are monsters. And what are the monsters gonna do? They're gonna eat us. You better believe it. They're going to eat us. Because when we're little and it's dark, we feel vulnerable and like we can't control what's about to happen. Right? What are children most afraid of? Disappearing. They are not strong enough to fight something off. They're afraid of being consumed. Some of us as adults still carry that, right? Depending on... Your early relationships, right, George? Some of us still carry a fear of being consumed. So what happens when we're afraid we're going to be consumed, when, that, when we're out of control, when it's dark, when things are eating everything around you and making a lot of noise doing it and you can't see? It's terror. You're panicking. Hold your seat. But I got to go. But you're not allowed to. But I got to go. But you can't go out till more right. So this incredible tension is what we're is what we're experiencing here. So they're told that they are to eat it like this, and that they are to shamol. They are to keep this business of matzah, and it is a night of zikaron, of remembrance for them. This they're being told, I just love this. They're being told what the significance of this is for the generations after them before they do it. In remembrance of something that hasn't happened yet. Right? So, wait a minute. You're going to do this in remembrance of I passed over your house. What? That hasn't happened yet. So, they first of all have to have faith, as Amy said. They have to have faith that that's actually going to happen. Why else would you eat the lamb that's going to be the remembrance of blah, 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 blah that hasn't happened if you don't believe it's going to happen? And if you read Torah, if you really read between the words and between the lines, the rabbis want to suggest it, w- it only happened for the people who believed it was going to happen. Because if you didn't believe it was going to happen, what did you fail to do? Put blood on the door. And if you didn't put blood on the door as a sign for whom? As a sign for you. God needs a map of where the Jews live. God forbid. God has GPS. Right? The God, you know, placement service. Um, so God has that. God, it can't be for God, God forbid. What, God doesn't know where Bernstein, Goldberg, Schwartz, where they live? Really? That would be an incredibly cheeky thing or chutzpah thing to say. So it can't be that. Is it for the angel of death? Well, the angel of the destroyer is unleashed. So some people want to say once it's unleashed, it doesn't discriminate. Once God allows the destroyer to go, it doesn't discriminate between good, bad, Hebrew, Egyptian, believers, non-believers. So it has to do something with the destroyer. But Torah doesn't say that. We have to take Torah seriously. You know Torah. It doesn't waste words. Clay is heavy. You don't waste words when you're writing on clay tablets. 
So if it says it's a sign for you, take that seriously. So what might that mean, Laura, that it's a sign for you? Tell yourself that um, to commit yourself. This is this is something that I believe to take an action to reconfirm what your thought might be. So the people who didn't take the action to say I'm in fully didn't leave, and no one else made that decision for them. No one else made that so decision self, for them. Choosing self. Choosing Now, if we wanted to have a longer discussion, we could talk about who probably chose for each household, but that's another conversation for another time. Um, but what's curious is that the people that put the light on the door had to really believe. But then, later on, in the desert, you have these disbelievers again. Amy, very interesting that you should say that. I mean, Several times from that. Yeah. yeah. Aviva Zornberg goes there. She says it took incredible trust to slaughter a god of Egypt. The sheep was a god in Egypt. You take one of their little baby gods, tie it up outside in the backyard, advertise for four days that it's back there. They're not quiet. Yeah. Right? In your yard, like for days and days and days. And then you're all slaughtering them at the same time. Anybody seen Silence of the Lambs? Yeah. Right? A movie you can't unsee. Yes. If you haven't seen it, let me just tell you. You can't unsee it once you've seen it. Do not go there. So one scene, right, is the incredible noise of the lambs being slaughtered. So they're all being slaughtered at the same time. So this is to opt into this because you really think... Your entire society and its rules and its ways are going to collapse tomorrow? Really? Well, wait. So I'll come back. Um, that act of belief, that act of courage, that act of opting in, that act of, of choosing relationship to this crazy idea takes a certain... Gumption, it takes a certain character, it takes a certain chutzpah that it turns out they lack once they're free. They lack it in the desert, and every one of them to a person dies in the desert. They can't do it because it's hard to sustain. Well, taking your freedom creates anger, which creates power. When, when you're enslaved, you have an ah, so Amy's suggesting, and Jane agrees, I hear over here, that when you're enslaved and oppressed, there might be a certain anger, a certain strength, a certain passion for justice or liberation or getting even or, you know, whatever it is that there's a, there's an agitation and an energy there that maybe isn't there so much once you're free and not oppressed. Oh, but they weren't there yet. They were in limbo when they they were waiting. They were. It wasn't that they. You know, I was thinking as by all about Harriet Tubman, right? So this we hear all the stories of the Underground Railroad and take it for granted that people chose to to find to to seek freedom. And I'm trying to you know put myself in that position and think what would it really take. For somebody who's enslaved, who knows only a world of slavery, who's born into it, who knows that leaving is like 99% death, maybe you're caught, you're tortured, to believe in another world that could exist anyway. And the kind of bravery and imagination and optimism it would take for someone to just say, I, don't, I imagine that there's another world than the one that I'm in. And to get there, I mean, it's, it's, it boggles the mind that people had that, had that imagination to imagine a different world. But these people, they, they had the same thing this night. This night. So that's kind of the interesting thing. This night. Then, after they're schlepping in the desert for a while, 
We don't want mana anymore. It's boring. You know, like, where's the meat? Can't we have meat? Why don't we have meat in Egypt? Like, what? So, where'd that go? Maybe so they're not free yet. You have this great faith that this supernatural power is going to save you, and maybe they imagine, you know, we all have, like, fantasies of what that means, but it's never as as good as the fantasy, right? Like, it, you always have to prove yourself again and again. And, I think it you has know. to do with identity, too. Yeah. Like, they identify the slaves, and how, it's sort of what you were saying, how do you, how do you, um, step into an identity of a free person. And a free person has to make a lot of choices. But I, I think it's easy to overthink this. Yeah. Mopi told But we're Jews. We're studying Torah. What do you mean no, overthink? No, 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 no. What, what I'm saying is, to me, no, no, wait, to me, it was, it was the doing. It was the doing. Not necessarily the believing. Who knew what they believed? And maybe a lot of different people believed a lot of different things. But it was them actually taking the action. Ah, so... Because ostensibly, as I think you said, God would know what they believed in their head, but it was only when they took action that it started to have meaning. So, it, and I'm, I'm not going to leave it alone. I'm going to keep niggling at it. So is the difference then, Bert, they had it here, they don't have it in the desert. Is the difference because in the desert they didn't have to do anything? No. Well, what... what I, I, I mean, God is feeding them mana. They're not doing anything. What I hear you saying is when they have to take action and they have to be involved, then they seem to be able you well, know, to I, move into that. Well, whatever step, they're, maybe they're taking a step forward and later they take a step back. But to me, it's in the action, as with the story of Nachshon at the, at, at, the, at the Sea of Reeds, it's them taking the action that came, maybe they believed, maybe they believed later, maybe part of the problem of the desert was there wasn't that great underpinning. But to me again, and, and that's, the, it's taking that action. It's not just sitting and saying, oh, I believe I can be free. I can right, but I, what I'm free. saying is those same people who took action later, like it, who cares what they believe? Even, even right, taking faith right. and belief out of it, they, they don't manage in the desert to do what they did here. Oh, and, and they get in big trouble. I mean, they, they ultimately don't make it because of that, Lisa. I, I disagree for what we were talking about just a few weeks ago. Okay. That they had so much faith, they just got a little impatient. And when we took a look at the golden calf, which was yud heh vav it wasn't a god. They were making a platform so that yud heh vav could come and hang out with them. So they, it wasn't that they lost their faith, it was that they got impatient and they wanted it now and they thought maybe we can um, facilitate this. Uh, by making a really nice platform for our God to come and dwell with us. So it was a form of faith, but it was, we, they didn't do it the right way. They did it. They didn't do it the right way, and they were impatient at that point. Okay, so one of their main, our, I mean, we're not going to ever say them, right? One of their challenges, one of our challenges is, yeah, we may be ready to take action, and in this place, they knew exactly what to do. They were told what to do, and so they did it. In another place, where they don't know what's happening, they feel out of control, right? They get impatient and anxious, and they act, yeah, as do yeah. Nadav and Avihu, right? Let's think of Nadav and Avihu. They act, but they act in a way that, like, they've determined, and, right? We saw what happened with that. George? After being in slavery, think of yourself as unworthy and impotent. And you take an action, and then that unworthiness and impotence can stay for generations, as we've seen in some here in the States. And that it's that learned helplessness, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Freedom is hard. And freedom I mean, ain't easy. you what to do every day, right? You don't have to make those decisions on your own. Anybody raised teenagers, they really push hard. And they unify and they hate you. And then, when they're on their own, they're like, ah, oh, I can't do this. I can't make all these decisions. Like, it's... It's hard. Mommy, it's what did cool. I do? Yeah, it's, it's just a whole, it's a whole other way to think, right? Some stuff goes well and some stuff does not go well. Yeah. It's nobody else's fault. It's your fault. Right. And, that's, and that is, some people want to read this generation with a m much more forgiving attitude. That it's like, you know, they can say whatever they want about you, but the minute they're actually living in their own apartment and having to figure out how to make dinner and how to get themselves to bed at a decent hour, right? That all of us, that, that they're not equipped 
to do freedom. That they're they don't they need mommy, daddy, whoever, you know, to to tell them what do they think they are. They think they're quite ready and they certainly know better than you do, right? Until they're out there and have to do it. And a lot of people want to read this generation with a lot of generosity and forgiveness about they just they they couldn't and who could those that had to die. George, that, that's how some people want to read this generation. That slave mentality, the slaves, had to die. And it's that part of us that we have to leave in the desert. Like, we have to allow that to die. And until we do, there is no moving in to the promised land. There's no building something else. There's no building a life based on now a different understanding, a higher order understanding of ethics, morals, values, choices, consequences, risk. We can't do that if we're schlepping around as, I don't have any power. I can't make a difference. I'll never be able to do this, right? That that's what dies in the desert. Right. Right. And our, you know, and our tension with this group is, but wait a minute, <laughs> like you witnessed, right? But we're not going to stay there. Um, I, you know, I went to the copier. God love you all. I went to the copier four times because I made three copies because there were three of us here. And then I saw a few more people. I'm like, okay, I'll make seven copies. I made seven copies. That is like 15 copies. And like, God bless you all. The room is full. I love that. But it means we don't have enough copies. So if you could share, um, that would be great. A question. Say that I had a non-Jewish version attending, and there's a whole bunch of good stuff about land, right? And she said, why don't you have lamb as a traditional meal? And uh, I couldn't answer it. This is one answer, that it was the symbol of, of fear and, and whatever else. Oh, interesting. Anticipation. And is that the answer? Because lamb is It's an answer. It's an answer. That's true. It's an answer. We're Jews, right? There's lots of answers. Um, Another answer is that in those cultures, in that region, that is the traditional meal. Lamb is still the traditional meal. We don't live there. We live where we eat other things. And our tradition of what we eat as traditional is Ashkenazi, Eastern European. Brisket. Brisket is Eastern European food for traditional. It's, it's a tradition. If we want to go what's traditional, it's a lamb. It's goat cheese. It's shakshuka, right? It's shawarma. You know, you carve it, you carve the lamb off the thing, throw it in some pita, voila, that's lunch, right? So it is traditional still in those cultures. We just, we now call, which I love, right? Because people want to say, oh, you have to keep the tradition the way it's always been. Really? 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 Gefilte fish? Right. Because that existed in ancient Israel, right? Gefilte fish, right? So... Uh, It is from you needed to eat every part of the fish because you were poor. So you bought what fish was affordable and you ground it so that you could eat more parts of the fish. And if you, who figured out that if you boil it and grind it and mash it all together and throw crane on it, it's all good. (laughs) Like how they discovered to build the fish is what I want to know. Why? I understand. But why are we still eating? Whoever. Laura, this is sacrilege now, honey. You are right against the edge. <laughs> there are parts you don't eat, right? Because the sciatic nerve runs into the leg, and they thought it was part of the reproductive system, most likely. So you don't. 
it was there was a taboo around eating that. <laughs> it is the best but part. Now we know um, but actually, now there's there's been a machloket. There's been a, a legal division in the in the um, observe in that kind of observant community um, around. It, can you remove, if you can remove the sciatic nerve, which is not easy, but there are butchers who, do, who specialize now in removing the sciatic nerve. If you do that, is it kosher? There's a bachloket. There's a halachic argument about whether or not it's kosher. So all of that stuff originates from if you grind certain things, legumes, um, into flour, you can make stuff, right, you... Even though it technically isn't a grain, if you can make it into flour, one might think, I saw Rabbi Amy with some flour that she makes, blah, 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 and she ate it on Pesach. Must be okay. Not, oh my God, it's worse than that. Worse than that. Then it must be okay. So they must have a lot of... So there's a lot of fences that get put around the law, including chicken being meat. Yes. Because chicken can look like yeah, veal. Chicken can look like you, you pound it and it looks kind of similar. All of these laws come into effect because if someone should see that you're eating and assume she's observant, and if she's eating it, then it's okay, that would lead people astray and it would lead them into sin. And so you put a fence around the law to make sure that doesn't happen. So all that beans and st- all that stuff comes from that. Uh, and now we've decided it's okay. So this is where I go back to tradition, the way we've always done it. And it's like, in what time period, in what country, in what part of the Jewish world, following which rabbi or which sect? Then we'll talk tradition, right? Um, right. It's a very interesting exhibit in the Museum of the Diaspora in Tel Aviv that has rooms of Jewish homes from many different... Uh, countries around the world and they're all Jewish homes and they all look completely different. <laughs> right? Yeah, but they, they, yeah. But they, they look like reflect the that, they reflect that culture. So look at, um, look at Aviva Zorenberg, page 172, bottom of the page where it says, in panic haste. So look at what, it's got 173, I chopped off 172. So you're going to have to infer from 173 where 172 is. I, I know. Work with me, Laura, work with me. I don't want to spoon feed y'all or, uh, or else I'll disable you in, in your own way. The significance of that night to the Israelites relates to the paradoxes of freedom. They resist the expulsion order of Pharaoh. Remember, Pharaoh said, get out. What does God say? You stay in your house until morning. Right? So there's this... They've been ordered by the only authority they know to get out. The one that's had the authority of life and death over them and their children says leave, and they're told by the new boss to stay. So we're back to this incredible tension. The immobility, miming in an uncanny way the immobility of the Egyptians during the plague of darkness, is described as a tableau of readiness to leave. The manner in which they are to eat of the so far unnamed sacrifice is bechipazon, in haste. But the word as translated by the Targum and by Rashi has connotations of behala, panic, of disorientation. There is a lack of control in this last meal, a sense of Blanchot's other night. She quotes him earlier, this whole paragraph about there's night and then there's the other night, right? There's... Like darkness, and then, then there's darkness. And um, that this has a hint of the other night. The lambs have been screaming and dead now. Midnight, the destroyer's unleashed. There's death in every you know, Egyptian home. It, this night is not one of, you know, we're going to lie back. Because think about it. What do we do to remember this night? We are commanded to, right? Well, say the rabbis. We got we got to remember that. 
say the rabbis, um, to recline and have a pillow and we're going to have a Roman meal. What is a Roman meal based around? Wine. How many services of wine there are. And uh, a very clear order of dishes. That's the Seder. We're remembering the night they are in slavery in Egypt, eating the meal that we're going to eat now, where they are right, trapped between Pharaoh saying, get out, and God saying, stay, and death everywhere. Could it be more different? This is our remembrance of that night. Okay. Ah, Laura. <laughs> You're beating me to the point too often these days. I, we're going to have to have a little chat um, outside the chapel. <laughs> right. um, strangest of all, this panic eating is commanded ahead of time. It is a planned panic inscribed in the laws, essential to what is to be staged on the night of the Exodus. The sacrifice is named Pesach immediately after this description of staged panic. And only then does God tell of God's leaping over the houses. Laura, talk to me about, about the two differences between this night and the night as we're going to remember it. We are, we're, I guess, we, we, we remember something by savoring how different our lives are now. That was a choice. The rabbis are the ones who created the Seder. All we're told from Torah, what do we have to do according to Torah tonight? What are the things we have to do? Tell the story. So part of, you know, an active remembering, tell the story. So actually we're only told three things from Torah. Only three. Pesach. Pesach, Matzah, Maror. That's it. That's why in your Haggadah, when you get to that part tonight, where it says anyone who's fulfilled these three things has fulfilled the obligation of Passover, because from Torah, all we're commanded is Pesach, bless you, you'll eat it, as zikaron, as remembrance on this night, Pesach, Matzah, Maror, Zeu. That's all. If, we're, if you were the rabbis and you're crafting a remembrance of this night, you're going to eat the Pesach, you're going to eat the Matzah, you're going to eat the Maror, and aren't you going to talk about how awful it was in slavery? And that this night, they were waiting, they were terrified, they were panic-stricken. And let's remember how awful that is so that we don't ever go back, we don't ever allow it to happen to anyone else. Curiously, that's exactly what the rabbis do. We eat maror. We dip stuff in salt water. Berdir, right? We eat the bread of affliction. How do we do it? As free Roman wealthy people. That's the context in which the rabbis are living. The rabbis live under Roman rule. And when they look at the Roman gentry, right? Only wealthy people, remember... Two-thirds of Rome, of everybody living under Rome, two-thirds were slaves. Two-thirds of the population. One-third of the population were legally free. So when you wanted to act like a free person, the rabbis looked to the Roman legally free who had money. There wasn't no middle class. You were a slave or an indentured servant or you were wealthy. And so they looked at Roman nobility around their big tables on their couches with wine service being a big part of it, how many cups are being served, and a very clear order of appetizers leading into your main courses, right? And then the big thing, dessert. What's our dessert? Just turn to your Jewish journal. Page 71. (laughs) You'll see a lengthy interpretation of um, dessert. So this is an expanded version. If you've read the other one I did, this is an expanded version of that. I think it's a little edgier. And they're excellent. Love to hear that. Glad to help. So, um, so it's ironic, and Rabbi Nick teaches beautifully about this. That it's ironic in a way, but in a way, it's like Laura says. It's like it's really, really poignant that they took the contemporary 
um, expression of wealthy lives of leisure and built their entire remembrance of this night on that. But that's what they do. That's what they do. That's what they do. So I, I have to believe 100%. Hundred percent, it's tongue in cheek. I think. I mean, first of all, it's true. They want to emulate that. You know, who if you're really going to live into being free and how that can be absolutely best expressed, they're looking at them with envy, right? Because they they don't have the rights of Roman citizens, the Jews. They're always living under threat. God forbid, but they were. But we're not going to talk about that right now. That's another conversation. Um, but they, so they they, like we all do. We all long for the house we don't have and the car and the vacations we will never have. And do I really want to be that? What would that mean for me to really become that? What would that mean for me to give up? Right? You know, so all of that's always going on. Um, but I have to believe it's somewhat tongue-in-cheek. We're going to take your oppressive, hedonistic, disgusting, vomitorium-based, orgy-based material culture, and we're going to use it as an expression of our understanding that because we were slaves, we don't ever want to enslave anybody else. And let all who are hungry come and eat. Halach ma'anya. Let everyone who needs a place join us. That's the point of the evening. We belong to one another. There's no in, no out, no click, no group, no legal or illegal, no master, no slave. It's, we're all one people. That is the great equalizer of this night. And that is our obligation to remember and observe every Pesach. Yes? Don't we do the same thing in modern seders in transforming this into something that is meaningful within the context of our life? Absolutely. Today. I, I mean, if you don't reconstruct it, it ossifies, some of us suggest, and dies and becomes stiff and wooden and just another set of things to observe because... You know, and no connection to that. Hundred percent. We, I believe, we have to reconstruct all of these practices in order for them to live and to continue to speak to us and challenge us. I think the seder is the one thing that I think more Jews observe the seder than any other Jewish Jewish thing. And it's true. In so many, so many different creative ways, uh, in the non-Orthodox world, I guess. Uh, you know, go to every, every seder is different. Right. Every seder is different, and, and, and each incredibly creative. And, and each year it's different, right? Like I had a house full of kids last year. Pfft, seder was like whatever. Can we just get through enough that we can call it good, <laughs> right? <laughs> right. Something about a liquid seder. It was cocktails. I think is a Wall Street Journal. Different sort of like sweet potato vodka. <laughs> oh, oh, horseradish, like dropping it. <laughs> Judaism at its best, yes, right? Chocolate seders, my daughter, still, that's her favorite memory of Passover is the chocolate seder. I'm like, okay. All right, but because um, it's different this year, something that's different this year, is it um, Pesach is on Shabbat. So for people for whom Shabbat has been a big deal, and it's the highlight of every week, Often they were people who were struggling, and the only time you had a chicken was was Friday night, and then you ate it again cold on Saturday. Like these were people who didn't have. Our, I'm talking about our ancestors now, right? Like they didn't have, and it, you don't have to be Jewish to feel that either, right? You know, wherever our ancestors came from, they came here to this country because they didn't. Something was going on where they were coming from, so. Um, so Shabbat was really important for many reasons, one of which I really believe is it was the in, finally some enjoyment um, in a very hard life. And so you looked forward to Shabbos, to wearing nice clothes and an iron tablecloth and some fresh flowers, and you splurged for the best meal of your week, whatever that was, whatever you could afford. So I'm just setting up this piece because you, you have to remember that then when Pesach is on Shabbos... Like, for people who live for Shabbos, and it's the pe- first day of Pesach on Shabbos, it's like there isn't a, a greater thing. Okay, maybe Yom Kippur on Shabbos is a little greater. But, but other than that, it's right. Um, so, so that's part of what this comes out of. So, so you turned your paper over, right? 
This is the Sfat Emet. Some of you know I love Rabbi Yehuda Leib of Ger, the Gera Rebbe, as translated and explained by Rabbi Arthur, uh, Arthur Green, who was once the president of the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College. Uh, and so we're going to look at the text by the Sfat Emet. None of these texts, none of these Hasidic texts, by the way, were published. These are all, all we have from students who studied with the Rebbe. So b- brilliant students who could remember the trajectory of, of the discussion wrote the notes down. So sometimes it's kind of ragged, and we have to read between the lines a little, but it's kind of somebody's notes, right, about what the Rebbe said. All right, but let's go, because I love this stuff. Yom Tov Shel Pesach, Nikra Torah Shabbat. So Yom Tif, meaning the first day of Pesach, is called in Torah Shabbat. Kedichtiv, where do we get that from? Mimocharata Shabbat, in the book of Leviticus, uh, from the day after Shabbat. Ki Pesach domele Shabbat. And Rabbi, uh, the Svaramed is saying, because Pesach is like Shabbat. Kemoshe Katuv Bishabbat, just as it says, about Shabbat in Torah, it is written, what is written? Zachor, Vayishmol, right? Ken Pesach. Just as we're told about Shabbos, Zachor, Ushmol, remember and observe. So we're told about Pesach. And here we get the citation. That we just read. This day will be for you a zikaron. A remembrance. In order that you should remember the day of your going out from Mitraim. So two places that he's pulling from Torah that tells us Pesach is about zikaron. Vechain and also Shmol et Chodesh Aviv. Observe the month of Aviv, of spring, literally. Ushmartem et ha matzot. And you shall observe, right? Guard, keep this matzah business. And the month of Aviv. This is also used, of course, about Shabbat. Kizichirahi. You, you gotta love this stuff. Um, keep the matzot. Why zechira? Why zikaron? Because zechira, and I'm gonna use feminine language here on purpose so that I don't say it, because what it is it referring to? In Hebrew, it's feminine. I'm just gonna go that, with that about this thing that we're talking about now, because it's poetic. Because remembrance. She is a point, a place that's interior. She'en ba shachacha. And there isn't in her any forgetting. Ulefi shebeshabbat mitgale nekuda zo. And because on Shabbat this nekuda is revealed, benafshut b'nei Israel in the souls of all of Israel, lachen trichashmira. She, this point of zikaron, this point of zechira of remembrance, where there isn't any forgetting in it, has to be guarded. This point that, that is revealed on Shabbos has to be guarded. Why? Shalotit pashet nikudat hapanimiyut lemakom sheyesh poshachacha. That that point of remembering shouldn't spill out into places where there is forgetting. That's the guarding we have to do. That's the keeping that we have to do on Shabbat. Um, you know, um, when you come here and you hear what is that? You can't have two different reasons for keeping Shabbat. Either Shamor or Zachor. And we get two different Sets of commandments in the Torah, don't we? We get the Ten Commandments twice, and they're a little different. One says Shamor, one says Zachor. The rabbis say, God forbid. You should think that God changed God's mind. And over there it was Shamor, and over here it's Zachor. There was a miracle that happened at Revelation of the Ten Commandments. Shamor and Zachor were spoken at exactly the same time. 
It's dibur echad. It's one utterance. Shamor and zachor. And now we understand why. Now we understand what's really up with that. The Svadimet reveals for us what's really going on there. It's because zechira, remembrance, where you're truly, there's no forgetfulness. It's all attention. It's all intention. It's all awareness. It's all focused. That can spill out into places of forgetfulness, of habit, of talking about someone as soon as they leave the room. Right? So that easily happens. So we need shamor. We need to guard and keep the zechira, the mindfulness, the intention. In case you didn't know, this is the whole business, it's the whole point of, of the redemption from Egypt. That on every festival of Matzah, every person of Israel uh, is made as if they were a new creation. As they actually were in the exodus from Egypt. As a newborn, right? As a little one who's just born, right? So you look around the world, what's happening in the world at this time? So let's just look at the world. Let's look at nature. What happens in spring? Babies. Everything's being born. Plants, flowers, perennials are pushing up. Even in Chicago, where I went to school, like little crocus were like fighting. Like, I'm up. Everything's being born. And when they came out of Egypt, what was happening? They were literally born again. They were born. They were taken from 400 years of being one thing and in that moment become completely something else now. They become a people that have choice, that have all the things we've talked about that go along with that, all the complicated stuff that freedom brings. But that's a radical difference. Slave to free person. It's a complete rebirth. Take a child out of an abusive situation, right? Watch if they can actually, if we're lucky, start to flourish, right? That, that, that they become, when we're taken from one situation of oppression and, and belittlement and disempowerment and given this opportunity and the support in the community to do it and everyone's doing that together, it's a rebirth. So it's, of course, connected. And it is renewed within each one of us, that very same nikuda, that very same interior point that has been planted by the KBH, by the Kadosh Baruch Hu, by the Holy One of Blessing within the soul of every person of Israel. Nikudazo nikrat lechem oni. This spot... This interior place is called the bread of affliction, the bread of poverty, the bread of oppression. Because she is without expansion. Just as matzah is dough. Just it's, it's dough itself. And it's only after that it expands and ferments and becomes very important. Now it's cake. Now it is roasted garlic ciabatta bread. So matzah is simple. It's flat. It's just dough. It's after that that it becomes very large and very puffy and very fattening, right? And very expensive and very full of itself because um, it's all puffed up. So do you see where he goes? That this place, this is matzah. And that's a good thing. That we want to stay, we want to keep that place simple. Not adorned, not all about a bunch of other stuff that doesn't matter. Not about status, not about, okay, my blowout that I got the other day, right? That it's not about that stuff. It's about... Flat, plain, unrisen matzah. Kemochen, kol ish Yisrael yesh bo nikuda. 
just as with every, within every person of Israel, there is this point. Matanam et Elohim, it is a gift given by God. Ube'emet, and truly, tzarich adam leharchiv zotanikudah, that a person um, has to be ready to widen this place. Lehamshich kohama and pull everything one does in through it. So it doesn't mean get puff up and big an expansion. It means what if we op- opened a space within each one of us, our communities, our homes, our schools, our political elections, Congress? What if we really expanded that place and pulled everything we do through it? What would change about everything right, that we did? Because it would be influenced by that. Zeha tikkun shekol That's the tikkun of every day of the year, like trying to be about that, that work. And that, and that people try to, to improve things and make them better. And so we have to be vigilant about guarding and keeping that place from fermenting. And all other kinds of puffed up changes on this holiday. Because it, it just got given to us again, right? It just got renewed. So we have to really keep it over these holidays and be careful that it doesn't get chimutzed. Ushmartem et hamatzot ki be'etem hayom hazeh hotseiti b'nei Yisrael me'eretz Mitzrayim. So a quote from where we just read. And you shall keep this matzah business, right? These seven days of matzah. Ki be'etem hayom hazeh because at its root... On this day, I took you, people Israel, from out of Egypt. Perusho, it's that the interpretation of that? Penimiyu tanikuda, it's this interior point. Kemoshihi be'etzem ve'eno mekabelet shinui, that um, it is in its original form without any change. And it, therefore, tzrichashmira needs guarding and protecting. And this day shall be for you a remembrance. Uh, meaning that this place of Zichirah, of remembrance, will be um, renewed for us, this place called Zikaron. There's also an interpretation. The same words, it, it shall be for you a remembrance. Mamash. Actually. That a person should actually remember the real reason we've been created in this world. To do the will, meaning of the creator. So, so two things that we go to, we go to the etzem of the dough. We keep it at the etzem, at its essence, at its simplest, at its most concentrated this place of zikhira, of remembrance. And of course, for them, that's a religious word. Remembrance is about how should I be behaving? What am I wanting to be about right now? How do I cultivate that? What do I need to refrain from in order to do that? And lishmol, to guard that place from becoming puffed up and expanded. And for the, for the rabbis, this is always what, what it means, getting rid of your chametz. It's always been about humility, a return to simplicity, a return to stuff before we get all caught up in the nonsense. That, that that's always what it's been for them. He's taking it one step further to this mystical identification of there's a place within us that gets it. And we let it you know, get all, all like pulled apart and you know, expanded and fermented and blown and puffed and casseroled. And, and that's not how we're... On, we have the opportunity now because it's being renewed within us. We have the opportunity over this Chag It's my wish for you, my wish for all of us, is that we find ways over the observance of Chag this year to return to that good place that's happy with so much less, that's happy with rolling on the floor with a puppy, that's happy spending time in the company of people we love doing nothing, reading, just looking over and realizing they're in the room, Still alive today? Because that's not always going to be. And can that just be enough? 
can we just go back to being flat, simple, corrugated, cardboard, matzah? When we do that, and when we allow that to take over in our lives, and we really set our intention to pull all of our actions and ways of looking at the world through that, we, we actually make this world reborn. We bring creativity and birth and beauty and, um, and flowering to this incredibly broken and gorgeous place that we have the remarkable miracle to call home. Shabbat Shalom and Chag Sameach. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.